Oh, hey there. It is your old buddy, Colin Sweets. Um, flying solo right now. Listen, I'm, I'm by myself in the apartment. Uh, Slaney is in the Bahamas, which is almost like poetic. I mean, if you're in Halifax on the week of Valentine's Day 2017, you know why we should all hate Slaney. <laughs> we got walloped like a couple of times. We got seriously walloped. And the, the funny thing is everybody's been going around all winter saying, you know, Mother Nature's been pretty easy on us so far. Uh, she was just holding out for the really nasty ones. So we've been driving in some pretty nasty weather. It's been a weird week. Uh, three consecutive snow days for public schools. There might be another one tomorrow. Uh, plus the Nova Scotia uh, government has been fighting with the Nova Scotia Teachers Union. And teachers are going to strike on Friday for one day only. So that's another day out of school. There's a very good chance most school kids will only be in school one day this week. <laughs> it's very odd. It's been an odd week. On top of that, a kind of weird thing happened. Uh, in the last hour of my radio show today, and I don't know if I'm being melodramatic about it, um, or, you know how when, like, a famous person dies and, like, people really, uh, really sing that person's praises and they really go on and on, and then there's always, like, a, a naysayer, there's always a contrarian who's like, you know, you never knew that person. It's not really the point, like... It doesn't so much matter that I never met Robin Williams. He made me laugh, and so I appreciate that guy. So anyway, we had another one of those, and I don't need to remind you that in the last year and a half, a lot of people who are loved for the art they've made have died before they should have. And today, we found out that a Canadian legend passed away, a gentleman by the name of Stuart McLean, who you would know as the legendary host of Sunday's The Vinyl Cafe on CBC One. He's been uh, a mainstay of one of the most important broadcasting organizations in the world, thank you very much, for decades and decades. And he's one of the great Canadian storytellers. He's up there with, like, Atwood. Um, and he had melanoma, and I guess I knew that, and I heard recently that he hadn't been doing new episodes of the Vinyl Cafe, and he wasn't going to tour, but they were counting on him to get better. Uh, and he was 68, and when you see the the headline on CBC of all places that beloved Stuart McLean has passed away. I don't know. It hit me like a ton of bricks, to be honest with you. It like, it really, I was in the last hour of my radio show and I've been doing it for five years, I guess. And you know, I, every week I go in there and I struggle with, uh, imposter syndrome might be kind of silly, but like, you know, am I cut out for this? Am I as good as, I want to be, am I as good as, as I ought to be? Um, and usually it's those kind of self-doubts that drive you to be better. But something seeded in your brain a long time ago that said maybe you'd be cut out for this and that's why you're doing it. And it wasn't so much my aptitude for getting up in front of the class and delivering a really wicked book report because I was brutal at that, and I'm still brutal at that kind of thing, talking in front of people and uh, being on display, being the center of attention. I don't, I don't care for that. So in that avenue, radio is really not my thing. And even at work, I'm kind of the quiet guy. Um, but I was always told I was a pretty good storyteller, and 
I mean, if you listen to this podcast, you know that's the thing I'm passionate about. So maybe the first time I really heard radio that I, I loved was when my dad, you know what, I remember it really well. I'm just, I'm just remembering this now. We were driving to Truro, where his parents live, to get a mattress that was in the attic because I needed a new mattress. And it was long ago, long ago enough that my dad drove a vehicle that had a, a tape player in it because he had the Vinyl Cafe on tape deck. And we listened to it, and I just remember being in hysterics. It was so funny. It was a long time ago. That was the first time I heard radio that I loved. And it was the first time I heard radio that was along the lines of something I thought I might be capable of. And so why am I talking about this on the Show Show podcast? First of all, this is not the Show Show podcast, not really, because Slaney's not here. And I don't have any television news to bring you. In fact, we agreed that we wouldn't do an episode this week, so this won't count as episode 35. This is just kind of a bonus on this uh, hiatus week. Why am I talking about it on a, on a show about shows? Well, I know the general premise behind the Show Show podcast is television. We talk about the greatest TV shows of all time contrasted with the new ones. But the term show doesn't have to mean television. Show just means escapism. It's just a thing that you let yourself be a part of to drift out of real life now and then. So that can that can apply to a lot of things. And on the Show Show podcast, I mean, you see it. I write in the little description of every single episode week by week that there are lots of side stories in the Show Show podcast. And that's really what the Show Show podcast is about. It's about side stories and a love of storytelling in general. And to speak for Slaney, I think he would agree. We love all forms of storytelling. That's why we do podcasts, because that's another one. It's why I do radio, because that's another one. Television, from you know Netflix original shows to NBC sitcoms from the 1960s, those are all different forms of storytelling. We talk about books, and we talk about movies. And The Vinyl Cafe by Stuart McLean was a unique form of storytelling, man. That guy had the best job in Canadian broadcast. Travel around the country, fill theaters with people who just want to hear a good yarn. And they laugh at the antics and they, their hearts are warmed by the humanity of these stories. You know, I, I, think, I think one of the reasons the stories about Dave and Morley feel so warm to Canadians is because they feel like your family. They, they feel kind of crazy. I don't know what else I want to say about it except for that Stuart McLean uh, had a very deep meaning to me as, as a kind of self-conscious broadcaster who cares about nothing more than a really good story. And I got to see him a couple of times with my family, we would go to the Rebecca Cohn. I saw him one time with Matt Anderson. That was his touring guest. And the second time, I think it was with uh, Megan Smith. And I remember they did a <laughs> they did a, a performance of, of that Gershwin song, the You Say Tomato, I Say Tomato. They did that as a duet, Stuart and Megan Smith. And then they did a verse where <laughs> she said uh, her name is Megan and he wanted to call her Megan. And so it was You Say Megan, I Say Megan. Let's call the whole thing off. Anyway, that stands out to me. Oh, Owen Pallet was another musical guest on the Vinyl Cafe. Uh, is he from? Is he from Arcade Fire or 
Broken Social Scene, one of those great, bizarre Canadian bands. Anyway, he was Canadiana, Canadiana at its very best. He was classy and he was Sunday morning and the grits and grooves of 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 his voice, the timber of his voice. I don't know, man. It just felt like home. So I wanted to do a little tribute in whatever way I could to Stuart McLean. So, so I dug up one of his books, um, Stuart McLean's Vinyl Cafe Unplugged, and I was looking around for a story that stood out to me. And one that, that my brother and I both really love is a story called The Fly. I, I think some of the classics from from Stuart are kind of holiday specific. Dave cooks a turkey, the Anderson's Christmas party. So I wanted to pick one that could just be listened to anytime throughout the year. And the story of the fly is a good one. You know, it's, it's a funny story and it illustrates the character of Dave Stewart's main character really perfectly. But I don't know. It's also, it's also a good story about, the fear of being alive and about how from the greatest to the smallest, every creature on this planet is just all we're really trying to do day to day is keep it between the ditches. We're just trying to get up and, and have the opportunity to to go back to bed at the end of the day without anything tragic happening. And unfortunately today, uh, Stuart McLean wasn't afforded that gift, but the gift he gave us is hours and hours of hilarious storytelling. And when I read you this story, um, understand, I won't be able to do it the justice Stuart McLean can do it. And I don't have the audience, uh, so there won't be that aspect. But if you've never listened to Stuart before, uh, l- just listen to this and then and then go explore him because he's, he's just the most wonderful storyteller. I wish I'd met him. I also, I don't think this is a copyright issue. I don't get paid to do this podcast. Uh, I'm not going to air any clips that don't belong to me. This is me reading something that I, I fully acknowledge is not my own creation. This is from the great Stuart McLean, uh, a story called The Fly, um, and I really hope you like it. Okay. The Fly by Stuart McLean. The small pleasure of going home at lunchtime is one of the welcome dividends that comes with owning a second-hand record store. When you choose to paddle in the backwaters, people don't get too bent to shape when you pull to shore from time to time. Dave closes his store and goes home for lunch a couple days a week. It's the one time he can count on being home alone, which being the father of a teenage daughter is a small pleasure he's thankful for. Most of all, Dave enjoys getting to the mail before anyone else, sorting and reading it while he eats a sandwich or a bowl of soup. Dave keeps a collection of smudge notes, handwritten on cardboard, taped to the inside of the front door of the vinyl cafe, which he uses whenever he closes during the day. Back in 15 minutes, I'm at Kenny Wong's. That's Wong's Scottish Meat Pies, five stores along the street. Gone to the bank. He's been using some of these notes for years, and a few of them are so smudged that Dave is the only one who can read them anymore. He sticks them up, nevertheless, and customers who find the store locked when they thought it would be open peer at the black smears taped to the glass and often try the door several times before they wander away. Of all the notes, Dave's favorite 
is a sign he didn't make himself. It's a sign Morley gave him when he opened the vinyl cafe. A cutout of a raccoon wearing a beret and smoking a cigarette. The raccoon has movable arms that you set like the hands of a clock. It's wearing a sweatshirt that says, Back at. You position the raccoon's hands to tell when that will be. Dave uses the raccoon when he closes at lunch. Dave came home for lunch one day in the middle of the week and found an envelope of the kind he's always hopeful of finding. The sort of letter that is the reason he bothers to check the mail. An ivory envelope of fine quality. Best of all, it was addressed to him. As he carried the envelope into the kitchen, Dave dropped the rest of the day's mail absentmindedly on the coffee table. A handwritten personal letter is not the sort of thing that you see every day of the week. It gave him pleasure just to hold it. So much pleasure that instead of opening it right away, he set it aside while he made himself a sandwich. Grilled cheese. Dave is old enough to know that the jackpot of anticipation is always a grander prize than truth affords. As he cooked his sandwich, he kept glancing at the ivory envelope. He didn't recognize the handwriting. There was no return address. He had no idea who might be writing him like this. Whoever it was used a fountain pen. It was a touch that implied intimacy, a kind of extravagance, something an old girlfriend might do. Dave carried his sandwich to the table, ate half, wiped his hands carefully on a napkin, picked up the letter, and slid it open. Dear Dave, the salutation had been written in the same ink as the address on the envelope, but the body of the letter was typed, printed actually. It appeared to be a form letter. There is no disappointment as painful as the fall that comes from great expectations. Dear Dave, this letter began five years ago in a small village on the coast of Turkey. It was written by a woman who lost her husband and children in a horrible traffic accident. Since she wrote this letter, it has traveled around the world five times. It has brought fortune and good luck to those who have received it and have not broken the chain. A lady in Brazil received a copy of this letter in 1997, and she sent copies to relatives and friends. Within a week, she won the lottery and now lives in a large house on Miami Beach. A dairy farmer in Britain threw his copy out, and England was eliminated from the World Cup. You must make five copies of this letter and mail it to five friends or neighbors within 48 hours. You do not have to send them anything else. If you follow these instructions, good fortune will occur within a week. However, if you throw this letter out or forget to forward it, there is no telling what horrible thing could happen to you. One elderly lady in Arizona made five copies and put them in her purse, but she forgot to mail them. Everyone who lived in her retirement community began to speak in a strange language that no one else could understand. Do not tempt fate. Continue the chain. The letter was unsigned. Dave examined the envelope again. The handwriting looked vaguely familiar, but Dave couldn't place it. He got up from the table and carried the envelope and letter across the kitchen and dropped them in the garbage can. He washed the dishes and went back to work. But the thought of the letter tugged at him all afternoon. Dave knew perfectly well that making five copies and sending them to his friends wasn't going to bring him good luck. It was the bad luck he worried about. England had, after all, been eliminated from the World Cup. Dave didn't want to wake up one morning speaking a language no one understood. That night, he pulled the letter out of the kitchen garbage and flattened it and folded it and stuck it into the pocket of his pants. It's a hard world. You can't be too careful. 
it's not such a big deal to make five photocopies. And even at 46 cents, a stamp is still a bargain. Dave went to bed feeling better, so good that he completely forgot about the letter until he found it a week later when he reached into his back pocket looking for his wallet. Dear Dave, do not tempt fate. Continue the chain. The same frustratingly familiar handwriting, but Dave's 48 hours of grace were up. He had broken the chain. There would be no letters from him. The lingering urge to pass the letter on was a defensive urge, an evasive action. Dave knows he is never going to win the lottery and live in Miami Beach. He's comfortable with that, with the knowledge that he's not a winner. But he's also just as determined not to be a loser. Dave was on his way to work when he found the letter in his pocket, and it was with some anxiety that he walked to the corner and dropped it into a garbage can by a telephone pole. As he did that, Dave sighed. It was a deep sigh of resignation, followed by a long, deep breath, which was, as far as he can remember, the moment he inhaled something. Something that wasn't air. Something bigger than air. Something big enough to drive every thought out of his mind and send him reeling across the sidewalk, coughing, tearing, sputtering. Pedestrians were gaping at him as if he were having a heart attack. Surely not now, he thought. He was not even 50. But for a moment, for a moment, for a couple of minutes, he spent wheezing and coughing, minutes that he couldn't remember anymore, for this eternity until he could breathe again and was able to wave everyone off. No, no, I'm all right. For this lifetime, Dave thought he was about to die. Something had gone down his throat, something big. Something like a watermelon, except watermelons are smooth. This was rougher, much rougher. More like a coconut, except bigger than a coconut. Big like a watermelon, rough like a coconut. This thing nearly killed him. When he had collected himself, reassured the people who stopped to help him and wiped his eyes with the tail of his shirt, Dave tried to work out what had happened. The last thing he remembered, he had dropped the letter into the garbage can on the corner. He looked over the metal container at the garbage spilling over the top, at the flies buzzing around. I just swallowed a fly he thought, a fly the size of a watermelon and rough as a coconut. His hand flew up to his chest involuntarily. He took a few tentative steps away from the garbage can. Everything seemed to be working all right. His legs were working. He coughed gently. He took a few steps. He shrugged and began to sing softly to himself, I know an old lady who swallowed a fly. That made him feel better. He smiled and started to walk a little faster, still somewhat unsure. But the unsureness was now joined by the giddy relief that depends upon the survivors of major disasters. He had almost died. He was alive. I know an old lady who swallowed a fly. I don't know why she swallowed the fly. This event, this brush with death, had happened not far from the Vinyl Cafe, almost in front of Kenny Wong's restaurant. Dave thought maybe he should get a pop, rinse his mouth. As he went in, he debated whether he should tell Kenny what had happened, whether there was any shame attached to swallowing a fly. He decided it was something he could speak of. So he did. And when he stepped back on the streets, he felt a lot better. Walking to work, singing. I know an old lady who swallowed the fly. I don't know why she swallowed the fly. Perhaps she'll die. He stopped dead. 
As he stood on the sidewalk halfway between Kenny Wong's restaurant and his record store, the awful possibility hit him like a sledgehammer in the stomach. Maybe he didn't swallow the fly. Maybe he had inhaled it. Maybe the fly wasn't in his stomach, where it would drown and be eaten by stomach acid and disposed of in the most fitting of all possible fly burials. Maybe the fly was in his lungs, where there was oxygen, where it could presumably live and lay eggs. It was Dorothy at Woodsworth's Books who once suggested Dave should change his marriage vows from in sickness and in health to in sickness and remission. (laughs) She had a point. There's no denying that Dave has over the years waged more than his share of battles in the struggle for survival. The war began when he was a child. It began the summer afternoon he noticed his kneecap was loose. He was seven years old, attending a school swim meet, sitting in the stands, in his bathing suit, with his hands on his thighs, where he stood up to see over Nancy Miller's head, and discovered that if he pushed down on his leg with his hands, his kneecap moved back and forth under his skin. He looked around to see if anyone else had noticed. Then he went to the boy's locker room and locked himself inside a cubicle so he could check out just how loose it was. It was alarmingly loose. He suspected that it was probably like a loose tooth, and that he should leave it alone because the more you wiggle it, the looser it would get. He was worried that it might fall off. But once you discover something like this about yourself, it's really hard to leave it alone. Six months later, when he went for his polio booster, Dave showed his loose kneecap to Dr. Art Ormiston. Dr. Ormiston examined it carefully and acknowledged that there was no question it was moving around. Then he patiently explained that a kneecap wouldn't likely fall off. There was all that skin to hold it in place. Unfortunately, he went on to tell Dave that from time to time people's kneecaps could dislocate. Dave looked puzzled. Slip out of place, said Dr. Ormiston. It took Dave no effort to imagine his kneecap slipping out of place. He imagined it sliding down his leg under his skin like a falling egg. In his imagination, his kneecap ended up wedged in his ankle so he couldn't walk. He wore a tensor bandage around his knee all that spring, only giving up when summer came and he had to wear shorts. When he was 11, Dave got a sore in his mouth that hurt whenever he touched it with his tongue, which of course he did continually. Although he was ashamed of the sore, his curiosity soon outweighed his shame. He showed it to his father, who said it was a canker and that it would be over in a week at the most. Dave thought his father had said cancer and understood that he was the one who would be over in a week. He didn't understand why his father seemed so offhand about it. Oh, it's just a canker. Oh, it's just cancer. Later, he learned about bacteria in health class. He began to hold his breath whenever he walked past a sewer. He still doesn't inhale when he empties the garbage. We all lug around baggage from our youth, and in the years that have accumulated since Dave was a boy, He's become hyper-aware of the thousands of wily viruses and bacteria that orbit him like a family of organized criminals, sizing him up, preparing their move. He thinks of himself as a walking petri dish, available for colonization by any one of the thousand of his microbic neighbors who may choose to move in. 
knowing that at any moment he may inhale the wrong speck of dust and his face will begin to blow up like a balloon or his capillaries will begin to leak blood and his crucial organs will pack it in one after another. He takes as many precautions as he can without drawing needless attention to himself. He never takes painkillers when he has a headache, in case he might accidentally mask a massive stroke, and he knows the symptoms of most serious diseases and many obscure ones. He knows how to disengage a hungry tick with a spawn of whiskey, which he long ago decided was a good enough reason to carry a flask wherever he went. The notion of having a lung full of flies was not something he was going to shrug off. The notion of having a lung full of flies horrified him. Perhaps she'll die. Once again, he was standing on the sidewalk, motionless, his hand on his chest. What did the old lady do? She swallowed a spider that wriggled and jiggled and tickled inside her. She swallowed the spider to catch the fly. There was no way Dave was going to swallow a spider. It didn't work for that old lady anyway. Perhaps she'll die. Dave did not want to die, especially a trivial death. Unexpectedly on his way to work after a brief struggle with the chain letter. A small part of Dave understood he was being crazy, paranoid. He couldn't even say with certainty it was a fly that he had swallowed or inhaled. And there was a valve in your lungs that closed down when you breathed something in, wasn't there? He was pretty sure it was impossible to inhale a fly. He might have swallowed a fly, but he was pretty sure he didn't inhale it. He was also pretty sure he could feel it bumping against the side of his lung, as if it were trapped between two window panes. He coughed as he unlocked the front door of the store. There was no one around. He left the closed sign in place, locked the door behind him, and stood despondently in front of the cash register. He looked around the empty aisles, wondering what he should do. He could hardly go to the emergency department. He picked up a broom and began sweeping his way around the bins of records, pushing at the dust carelessly, trying to keep his mind off his lungs more than anything. It did not work. It was all he could think of. And pretty soon, he knew with certainty the fly was in his lungs. He could feel it. It was a weird sort of buzzing sensation, a tickle that was less than a cough, but undoubtedly there. It wasn't normal. By three o'clock, Dave had worked himself into a complete lather. Maybe it was a fly that came into the country in a shipment of exotic fruit, a fly that carried an obscure disease that only a very few genetic types in the world were susceptible to, and Dave was one of those people. They'd never diagnosed that. He would get a fever, go into a coma, and then, after a long and valiant fight in the hospital, the fever would suddenly break and he would snap out of the coma, but he would be speaking in a foreign language that no one could understand, and everyone would think he had gone crazy until an elderly Egyptian orderly recognized the language as ancient Sumerian. It was six o'clock, time to close the store. Dave wasn't sure if he should go home or straight to the hospital. He went home. He took his temperature, 99.2. Not a good sign. Whenever Dave really starts to get into potential diseases, he likes to do Tai Chi. He only knows a couple of the movements, but he repeats them over and over, and they seem to center him. Before dinner, he went into the backyard, started to do Tai Chi. Morley's been around long enough to know what is going on when this happens. When she saw Dave in the backyard awkwardly spinning, stretching and bending, she called out through the window. Dave, she said, there's no such disease. What did she know? Dave knew he was going to die. 
The best he could hope for was that he might become a world-famous medical case and attract the attention of someone who could help him. Maybe along with the Sumerian, he would develop the ability to solve complex mathematical equations, and Dr. Oliver Sacks would come from New York City to examine him. Dr. Sacks would watch Dave work out equations on a big blackboard in a university classroom, and they would make a movie about him starring Robert Redford. Dave imagined himself going to the opening with his only friend in the world, the old Egyptian orderly. No, he would die before the movie was finished. He wouldn't get a cameo role, just a cryptic mention in the credits. This movie is dedicated to the memory of Dave. He knew what he had to do, and he knew he had to do it fast. He had to kill the fly. Until he killed the fly, he was not going to be able to function as a normal human being. The only thing he could think of doing was to cut off the fly's supply of oxygen. Sadly, this was Dave's supply of oxygen, too. Working on this sort of medical problem which essentially involves auto-surgery, is not something Dave likes to do at home in front of his family. He was too anxious to eat dinner. I'm not hungry, he said. He told Morley he had to get back to work. He let himself into the store and spent half an hour squatting on the floor behind the counter, trying to hold his breath for longer than a minute. Using one hand to squeeze his nostrils closed and placing a strip of duct tape across his mouth and kicking his feet as if it were being throttled, Dave was able to last a minute 15 seconds without breathing. The problem was that after each attempt, he sucked in air so desperately and deeply that he was pretty sure that had the fly been trying to abandon ship, it would have been driven back by the force of his inhalations that it never would have found its way out. He was pretty sure he could feel it reeling around his bronchial tubes like a drunk after an all-night binge. That's when Dave realized the fly probably wanted out as badly as he wanted it out. They weren't enemies. They were partners. This is what people who run management seminars called a shift in paradigms. Dave should help the fly, not punish it. He should show it the way home. He stared at the table lamp on the counter beside the cash register. He moved the shade and flicked the light on. He slowly opened his mouth as wide as he could and began to sink down with his mouth wide open, trying to get his lips as close to the bulb as he could which is what he was doing when his eyes caught movement at the front door. He looked up and saw Jim Schofield staring at him, with his mouth hanging open, even wider than Dave's. Dave straightened up and unlocked the front door. I was walking by, said Jim defensively. I just happened to look in. I swallowed a fly, said Dave. It's in my lungs. I thought it might be attracted to the light. I thought it might fly out by the light. That's moths said Jim. What? said Dave. Moths, said Jim. It's moths that are attracted to light. Dave stared at his friend. What are flies attracted to, he said. There was a long and awkward moment of silence. Jim said, how do you know you swallowed a fly? I can feel it. It's buzzing. It's a sort of buzzing feeling, like blowing on grass. Jim said, do you have a vacuum cleaner? Dave glanced toward the back of his store. Jim brightened. We could use the crevice tool, the one for behind the radiator. Dave said, are you out of your mind? Jim said, you're the one with the fly in your lung. Dave said, I do have a fly in my lung. Then he said, put your hand over my mouth and hold my nose so I can breathe. He started to turn around. Don't let go unless I pass out. Jim shrugged. 
Okay, he said doubtfully. He rolled up his sleeves and shifted his weight from foot to foot, trying to find his balance. He slipped his arms over Dave's shoulders. Wait a minute, he said, dropping his arms. What do I do if you pass out? Dave turned around in exasperation. You wipe your fingerprints off the door and you go back so no one can see you. Jim nodded earnestly. Dave couldn't believe him. He was almost yelling now. What do you think you do if I pass out? You give me mouth to mouth until I start breathing. Jim cocked his head. There's an idea. Dave said, what's an idea? We could drown it, Jim said. We could go to a pool and you could suck in a lung full of water. Dave looked alarmed. What about me? We'll go to the Y, Jim replied calmly. Where you have lifeguards, they'll know what to do about you. They're trained for that. You look after the fly and they'll look after you. Instead of going to the Y, they went to Hogarth's Humidors. Dave bought a $12 cigar. I'll smoke it out, he said. He chose a cruise reel number 19, dark and sinister looking, like a burnt stick. When he took it to the cash register, the man behind the counter tried to talk him out of it. That's a little on the strong side, he said. Good, said Dave. Actually, said the man, it has a sort of numbing effect. You wouldn't want to smoke this cigar before a meal. It tends to remove your senses of taste for a couple hours. Good, said Dave. It's made in Mexico, said the man. Dave smiled. He figured there might be a pesticide residue that would work in his favor. Anything else? asked the man. A pack of matches, said Dave. He lit the cigar on the street and took a long, deep drag and held the smoke in his mouth. Then he inhaled it and nearly passed out. It was like the moment that afternoon, which seemed so long ago now when he had inhaled the fly. He folded over as if someone had punched him in the stomach and coughed for two minutes straight. Jim stood beside him and said helpful things like, Are you all right? And, I'm not sure you're supposed to inhale those things. When Dave stood up, it was as if he was resurfacing from underwater. I like these Mexican cigars, he said. They have a sort of nutty flavor. Aren't you supposed to have a brandy with those things, said Jim. It was well after midnight when Dave got home. He collapsed into bed beside Morley's sleeping form. He was still wearing his clothes and shoes. He did an inventory of his body. His head was throbbing. His stomach was somersaulting. But he couldn't feel any buzzing in his chest. To be perfectly honest, he couldn't feel much of anything. Except bad. Except nausea. When he closed his eyes, the room began to spin. He dropped a hand to the floor to steady himself, and that's exactly the position he was in when he woke up at 11 o'clock the next morning, lying on his side with his mouth hanging open. His lips were parched and cracked. His mouth felt as if it was full of ashes. His head throbbed in pain. Every few seconds, a sharp noise bounced unpleasantly around his head. Whack, whack, whack. It was like torture. Morley, he said, without moving, without rolling over. I phoned Brian, she said. Brian opened the store. Whack. He rolled over. Morley was poised by the window, a rolled newspaper raised in her right hand. There was a fly on the window, walking towards the ceiling. Morley drew the paper back. I keep missing, said Morley. Wait, said Dave. Dave inhaled deeply and began to cough. There was a burning rawness in his chest, the feeling that his lungs had been seared by smoke. But no trickle, no buzzing. 
don't kill it, said Dave. Just open the window. It'll go out by itself. Morley shrugged and raised the screen. The fly circled the ceiling a few times and then darted out the window. Dave raised his head from the pillow and watched it disappear into the crisp morning air. Thanks, Stuart.